Allez. We're on. Hi, guys. Welcome to, uh, what is it? Episode five? Q&A number three. Yeah. I think we, we just call it episode five. Episode five, make this simple. Um, Callum is back from holiday, refreshed and not tanned because Dubai was too hot. Couldn't I'm go referring to himself in the third person. <laughs> Shocking. Uh, yeah. um, so this is number three Q&A. Um, Luke, how are you? Yeah, good. Good. Very good. Um, we were at, where were we this weekend? We were at Jake's, get Jake Carter's um, Function Nutrition Seminar this weekend, which was good. Um, thank you for putting that on, Jake. And we met a lot of cool people there, um, which I'm yeah. sure you agree with. Um, yeah, my, my first venture up north that far, really. Yeah, first venture to Manchester, actually, and met, met with some cool people, some clients, and it was, uh, it was awesome. It was good. Awesome. We've got some news as well. I'll let Luke drop it. Oh, really? It's too kind. Yeah, um, no, so me and Callum are proud to announce that we will be uh, basically hosting our own and first seminar on the 23rd of September in London in, uh, in Body Fitness in, uh, well, in, in the city. Um, but um, and, uh, we're, we're going to save like, the details of exactly what it's going to involve until later this week when we put out the actual announcement on our social media platforms. Um, but for the time being, basically save the date and, um, and hopefully we'll see some cool people there. Um, and it would be, you know, should be pretty exciting. should be awesome. It will be. It'll be very cool. Um, yeah, it's exciting. Well, uh, like Luke said, we'll drop the information uh, a bit later on in the week on social media and then people can, um, just kind of respond off that and interact uh, but we're looking forward to delivering that that'll be really cool and um question number one today i will read it out uh, anthony barnes who is currently traveling in indonesia um anthony's a powerlifter hybrid powerlifter slash bodybuilder because he got bored of powerlifting so he's tired <laughs> of feeling injured <laughs> um thoughts on isometrics in terms of but in terms of both maximal motor unit recruitment and to build connective tissue strength, like using them for rehab slash prehab. But he's actually spelled prehab, prefab. I think that's a typo. Is it? I wonder. <laughs> maybe he's like created something that we don't know about. Yeah, maybe we, that's like the MRV question. We, we're just going to comment on something random without knowing what we're talking about. Well, no, mate. I was asking you about prefab. <laughs> Prefabulous. <laughs> um, yeah. You know a lot about isometrics, don't you? Yeah, I mean, like, we, I could we talk about some of the, like, we would break down the three main types of muscle contraction. But it, like with isometrics, it, like, it's it's easy to see that like people kind of get the impression when they look at loads of research papers and some of these research papers kind of falsely interpret some of the data and it looks like isometrics get or give a, a, a higher motor unit recruitment than concentrics and eccentrics. But what, you know, basically the way they measure that is typically by using things like surface EMG and when the way those surface EMG things sit on muscles, when you don't change the length of the muscle, like in an isometric, you basically get a much more consistent reading um, of the same motor units that are being used to generate that force. So 
you don't necessarily get more stimulation, but you just get more data. So, so on you know of of those motor units. So you know it can be interpreted that we have more motor unit recruitment, but it's it's not generally the case. And it's um and you'll see that. I mean, like if you you were to compare strength, um, strength levels of a um you know the concentric isometric and eccentric you know obviously strength isn't solely dictated by motor unit recruitment but you're not you don't tend to be as strong in an isometric versus um something like an eccentric and a concentric and and you know i think yeah anyway but but the um the, the main thing is that we don't necessarily get more motor unit recruitment in an isometric so i think in terms of answering that part of the question but in terms of using it for prehab and rehab i think they have a place i think that there's a lot of what they you tend to find when you're doing like positional isometrics which don't necessarily use a lot of give force. an example so if you're doing like i mean one that i you use and for those that have done rts i, I you know you'll see this and i use it a lot um is like if you're assessing someone through torso rotation and you get them to move, you know, rotate as far as they can to one side and then you get, you basically challenge them very lightly in that position. So they're trying to hold that, that so, you know, hypothetically they they've moved into left torso rotation. You're going to challenge them there very lightly. You, you, you like get them to hold that for a few seconds and then get, they'll relax and then they'll move a little bit further. And what you've basically accomplished there is, is potentiation of their nervous system which is a topic for another day, but that's where... Explain the word potentiation. Huh? Explain the word potentiation. This is essentially the, like an adaptation that occurs in the nervous system in response to contractile history of a muscle. So when you contract a muscle in a certain way, your, your nervous system will, will upregulate output to that tissue and you, you potentially you basically get more um potentially get more range depending on what it is but you know so that's a way that you can use isometrics to re-establish available range in someone's tissues so you can get someone who's quite locked up in a certain you know a certain uh, muscle or a certain range of available joint position or whatever it is and and you can use something like a positional isometric to get them to improve that um and that's where I, I see it. I see the value in like rehab and prehab, but there's also no reason why you can't use concentrics and eccentrics. So you know, all it boils down to is tra not training like a dickhead and and yeah. being like being aware. You know, you can get someone to you can rehab someone very well by including both lengthy concentric, eccentric, and isometric contractions and as long as you're respectful of how their body's functioning in terms of their available ranges and, and muscle lengths, then you, you'll be fine from a rehab standpoint. Um, yeah. Just don't be a dick. Yeah. And um, I know you're like, a, well, we're both big fans of the whole potentiation thing pre-training. Yeah. Like, let's just use this as an opportunity to talk through that in terms of its applicability to what we'd want to do in the gym in terms of building muscle. Yeah. Activation based stuff. Cause you've been putting a lot of well, some stuff on Instagram as well of yeah. some drills that you've been using and you've been doing a lot of crazy stuff with the ankle and foot, haven't you? Yeah. I think someone's asked that as well. Someone what actually said, was that? Yeah. I'm just trying to find it. 
I suppose it doesn't really matter. Let's just see. They just asked that exact question. Um, well, I mean, for me, it's it's a case of you know, it's like I've spoken about before. When when you're doing anything in the gym, you've got like your and and this is again, this is ripped straight from Michael Goulden of Integra, who teaches resistance training specialist here in the UK. But you know, he he has this concept of. Actually, I think it originated in RTS, so technically it would be Tom Purvis, but there's the concept of resistance fighters versus joint managers, and you have like the the guys, the resistance fighters, which are the guys that are fighting the external resistance, you know, moving the load. So in the case of like a bicep curl, your bicep's the resistance fighter, and then in, you know, the, the guys then managing the force that's being produced by the bicep, which would be like the triceps and some of the guys around the forearm, um, even the shoulder, because the, the biceps biotic yeah um those guys are then there to mat like be the joint managers and, and keep you know maintain integrity of those joints and like when we're in a gym and we're about to do loads of heavy lifting it for me it pays you know that well there's a lot um lot to be said with regards to making sure those joint managers are able to do their job pretty damn well and that comes from basically doing you know sub maximal movements for for certain uh, you know muscles and, and positions that you're going to get into to just make sure that you have the ability to maintain joint integrity there so you know whether that's you know cueing some of the external rotators and at the varying degrees of you know glenohumeral abduction that you experience in like a shoulder you know shoulder pressing bench pressing whatever it is you know very Move, chest movements and shoulder movements you know you want to make sure everything behind the shoulder is able to do its job similarly around the hip you'd want to make sure some of those deep external rotators are able to do their job the deep internal rotators you know at the foot you want to look at like dorsiflexion and you know some of the everters and inverters and, and lateral rotators of the tibia and stuff like that so there's it's basically just understanding the anatomy again and just making sure that everything's working well enough to make sure that we can remain injury free when we're trying to get the most out of some of us, you know, our muscles on these bigger movements where we're potentially more prone to injury. Mm. I think that, yeah, I think that you did say it then, the biggest thing about um, that whole potentiation principle as well as your ability to come away from it, like actually neurally excited and firing as opposed to fatigued and the yeah. fact that you actually draw it feeling yeah. You, know, you draw it feeling ready to go for that heavier loading, whatever you're doing, as opposed to have actually accumulated fatigue in that first movement where you should have gone away fresh. Yeah, and that's like when we put it in our programs. That's something we're quite clear to say is, you know, the the, the amount of sets you'll need to do is dependent on a lot of factors that of you going into the gym that day. And you know, some days you might need one set, and some days you might need five sets to get that right feeling. But all the time you're trying to avoid overly fatiguing some of these muscles because the minute you fatigue them you know if their role is then to manage the then a humeral joint for example then and they're fatigued then they're going to do a pretty shit job at that so it's you know you've got to find the line mm. as Cal said Boom. yeah um good answer okay next Oh, this is, uh, I can't remember this guy's name, but it was a good question. Um, I have a question for your upcoming podcast, as I believe it is digestion related. Um, when flying for extended periods of time, 10 plus hours, it could be less technically, 
is there an optimal approach to nutrition that can minimize negative effects to body composition or even help minimize the effects of jet lag or perhaps it is best fast during such flights bit of a strange one but thought i would get your take on it i personally i've, I've always suggested especially for longer haul flights to to fast just because of what's going on within that time frame mm. from an adjusted perspective would you agree yeah and like just the, the change in in uh, well, essentially the disruption you're going to get to your circadian alignment. So the the, the minute you, you know you potentially often find people try you know flying at times where they'd normally be sleeping, and then they decide to have three meals during that time as well, and then you're basically throwing their body's natural you know, there's those internal clocks in our body that we do have multiple ones, you know, in that like in our hypothalamus and our, you know, there's genes in our liver that are coded on circadian rhythms and stuff like that. And, and you know, when we've been functioning a certain way for a while and then we, in the time when we're meant to be sleeping and resting, we, we suddenly give our body all this, you know, this input to keep it awake. It's going to throw us off pretty massively. And that's, generally seen as a massive contributor to jet lag so in cases where cases where it's a short flight i wouldn't worry about it but in cases where you're going to be traveling at a time when you would normally Long be, yeah yeah it pays to fast but i mean nine times out of ten people don't do that and you can get people i mean i don't know the science behind it but you get people um who take quite heavy doses of melatonin and stuff to offset some of that circadian disruption. Um, and I think those sorts of people would also tend to fast as well, because it's obviously not just to do with food, but the changes in light, light and dark cycles of where you're going to and stuff. But um, that is an interesting one. Maybe look to get someone on to talk about some of that stuff in the future. Cause that's cool. It's a cool topic. Mm. Um, when you uh, when where did you go? You, when did you fl when where did you go on holiday last time? Nepal. The, did you did you wear your blue blocking glasses to Nepal on the flight? Oh yeah, yeah, I did actually. Did. Yeah, and that's like Luke is that guy. He's that guy on the plane where you walk in. He's wearing fucking dragon skin joggers, a pair of Otomics, and uh, yellow glasses. <laughs> Uh, with a military backpack <laughs> the um yeah i mean the, the, the that's the thing like the blue light blocking glasses a lot of those those same guys that do the you know the melatonin and the fasting they'll, they'll be those guys as well like it's a good crew to be a part of for the record but um the uh they there there isn't a ton of evidence for the blue light blocking glasses so i think it's, it's hugely a mental thing and i think if they were to study that they wouldn't find much benefit to skip, you know, jumping a time zone and wearing some glasses because, you know, that's assuming that our eyes are the only things that respond to light and that's not true. Like there's photoreceptors on our skin um, that, you know, respond to light in a very similar way that our eyes do. So just covering our eyes. I mean, that someone's going to come out with a blue light blocking suit and that will probably work. <laughs> You'll be the first one to buy it. <laughs> I'll, be in there. I'll be the test on it. The, um, the, the, like the blue light blocking glasses, I think the biggest thing they are is a, um, is, is a, it's almost like a placebo effect. You you give them to someone, you go, this is going to make your sleep much better in the evening. You know, your your ability to wind down, and you'll probably find they just naturally 
do wind down because of that. Um, whether it's the glasses or not, I think they still have yet to prove it. Mm. I find that often, like the glasses side of it, or putting the glasses on almost like initiates the evening. Yeah. So people yeah. will then change their change their habits as soon as the glasses are on. They're like, right, I'm going to chill out. I'm going to turn this off and then turn that off. I'm going to turn the lights off. Yeah. Uh, it's like almost like a cue to get your shit together. Literally. Um, all right. Cool. Yeah. Uh, is there anything else on that? That was about it. So I think in answer to that question, I would personally recommend fasting. Problem is, is you get people that go, "Yeah, I'm on a, I'm going away on holiday. I'm going to smash all the food I can in the airport." And you're like, "Well, that's like, if you want to enjoy your holiday a little bit more and not spend a few days feeling like shit, I would probably hold." Supplements away from melatonin to reduce jet lag. Any like botanicals or adaptogens? I haven't. I haven't personally looked into it enough. I know Gaz. Button, yeah, but then that's technically on a similar level to melatonin in the that's sense funny. of phenylated GABA. So you're still manipulating neurotransmitters mm. directly, pretty much. Yeah, I think it's, it's an interesting one. I'd, I'd love to get someone on to really dig deep into the science behind that, to be honest. Maybe Paddy. Paddy, yeah, Paddy would know. Paddy would know. Yeah. All right, sweet. Well, um, I think it would be cool to get a, to some form of sleep, ex- sleep expert on at some point. Oh, yeah. That's planned. Just to talk you through. Sean Stevenson, in. If you haven't read that book, you need to go and read that book. What are your top books on sleep? Sean Stevenson. That, uh, sleep, uh, Nick Littlehill's sleep is good as well, isn't it? Yeah, that's good. I, I prefer Sleep Smarter because it's more, I think there's more actionable points in there. Mm. And... Um, and when, I, when you listen to the audible version, Sean Stevenson's voice is like absolute magic. You're saying you sleep anyway. Which is just the easiest guy to listen to. Um, and then, um, so there's that. And then there's one, Why We Sleep by um, Matthew Walker. I think that's good. Um, and then, um, I mean, honestly, there's some pretty, you start digging into like research papers on it and all the information, that's where they got it all. You just look at, you know, type in some decent research papers and like epidemiological studies and stuff like that. You'll see some cool stuff on like circadian rhythms and varying sleep stages and stuff like that. And so when you're like data tracking with clients and stuff, you can start seeing you know where, where what percentages of deep sleep light sleep REM sleep people need to be getting and, and what are the biggest factors affecting that and then like using books like sleep smarter to then go sweet how do i then make this sleep 20 times better yeah i think just just from the availability of our ability to like track it more effectively now like everything everything's at our disposal isn't it yeah like how can we analyze it and how can we fix it it's all it's all there Stay tuned for that seminar, people. <clears throat> yeah, something <in> seminar. <clears throat> <laughs> uh, drop that one there. Um, right, let's answer uh, Odran's question because it's a good one. Um, I'm not going to do it in his Irish accent because I can't. I can't replicate it. But you had talked about huh? Oh, is this the hamstring one? Um, do you want to go through hamstrings now? Is that is that what it is? Yeah. Yeah. All right. Cool. Because I thought we, we could do hamstrings, but then we could do the leg extension and how people will then refer to pointing the toes or placing intent for hitting different 
quad uh, heads of the quad. Yeah, that's good. It follows on. Um, you had talked about feet and hamstring curls, but not sure if I missed that. Future yeah, that, that was me. I, I do that every now and then. I'll come up with an idea, drop it on my story, and then just forget to post about it. So, <laughs> so, so what so, was the question? There's no like, question there. <laughs> so, so, I basically had said, ask people about do they dorsiflex or plantiflex when oh, they do right. and the impact. And then I was like really shady and, and like cocky about the, the you know certain ways of doing it and then i just didn't follow through with that so i apologize for that. <laughs> <laughs> but the um no i mean it, it like there, there's a lot of stuff out there and this is where people go yeah something feels really good so it must be great and and when you dig into the mechanisms that you find that's not actually the case and like most people listening to this will probably have done a leg curl and plantar flexed which that's where you point your toes and gone, oh yeah, man, I f- like that feels way harder in my hamstrings. Um, and then similarly, they you dorsiflex, which is where you, you flex your toes up towards your knee. Um, and, and it's like, oh yeah, I'm pretty strong in that position. Like that, that's strong. But when I plant flex, it feels like there's more hamstring and there's like varying ways of looking at this. Like some people just swear absolutely that you have to plant to flex because because <laughs> and then but they don't necessarily know why but basically you've got to you've got to understand the role of the calf in knee flexion um and so like the calf itself is biarticular and then it crosses the ankle joint and it crosses the knee joint um and um it therefore plays a role in what happens at the knee joint and, and it does actually play, you know, have an ability to flex the knee. It, it's actual mechanical advantage to do that is pretty crap. Um, so like people go, Oh yeah, I think someone did a post the other day saying, you know, insinuating that your calf is actually better at flexing your knee than it is at plants flexing your ankle joint, which as far as I'm concerned is total bullshit. Um, but so, again, uh, like, like, um, yeah, I know shots fired, but you know, if, if that person's listening, then I'm happy to be educated on that. But as where I, from what I know now, that's, that's not true. Um, unless you have the biggest calf ever that has like the most insane internal moment arm to knee flexion. But again, I, I, that's, that's rare. Um, but, um, but what, what the, the calf basically does in knee flexion is, it causes compression and we'll go through this when we do like a, you, cause this is one where you kind of have to see it to, to understand what's going on. But the calf itself basically is pulling the tibia down into the, you know, the, you know, the tibial femoral joint um, to create compression so that all the force being produced by the hamstring is rotational as opposed to transitory, which is like that shearing force, which you'd get as if, if the hamstrings weren't being, this is like hearts back to that joint manager thing. If the, if the, mm. there weren't joint managers involved at the knee, the hamstrings would basically rip the tibia backwards towards the hip and it wouldn't produce rotation. It would just pull it off. Um, and like the calves and like the quads will basically work to counteract that force being produced by the hamstring and create rotation there. And what happens is, is when you plant flex your, your foot, um, your, you shorten the calf from the the end, you know, from one end, from the ankle, 
and then it because it's a bioarticular muscle you then make that essentially actively insufficient so it's then incapable of causing these compressive forces at the, at the knee and as a result you, you you basically you lose that compressive force which which actually causes this it's not a, the sort of thing you'd want to do that often because you lose that you, you basically increase the amount of posterior shear that's occurring at the knee um and like obviously your quads are there to do that and your posterior cruciate ligament is there to do that as well so you you um you have that kind of safety net but you, you do lose the calves um in that as well so you you're and, and that's the thing like people then feel like their hamstrings are doing more and it's just because the force being produced by the hamstrings is kind of less managed um so i, I mean the way i t- i co- coach it and again if someone wants to disagree with me send me a message please but um like the, message. <laughs> um the the dorsiflexing will basically allow the calf to to produce a lot more compression force and therefore which is why the, the the force then produced by the hamstrings is going to be increased because you you're basically giving that those the hamstring more support so the is, the nervous system can then upregulate the hamstrings force production and you, you you basically are a little stronger and that's you know pretty dumbed down version of how it works but you basically like to summarize People that do, that plantar flex, I wouldn't necessarily do that on the concentric portion of that rep. Some people will do it on the eccentric, and I think there's less issues there. Um, yeah, well, I've, seen, I've seen people do like dorsiflexion up, plantar flex down. Yeah, and, and I think some guy actually mentioned something. I forgot what he said, and I said it was actually potentially quite smart where he would um, kind of keep his foot neutral. Um, and then as he fatigued during the set, he would start dorsiflexing. And that's actually not a bad way of doing it because by keeping the foot neutral, your calf's in a position where it can still provide some compressive force. And as his hamstrings are then fatiguing more, he's then dorsiflexing, which will upregulate their ability to produce force a bit. So it's kind of like giving himself a spot, yeah. in time, which is pretty clever. And I said that. So that that's, you know, if, if you, I think... If you if you value your knee health, don't plant a flex when you do a leg curl, um, and uh, and if you do, just make sure your quads are pretty damn strong. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that that's pretty much that one. And like, if somebody were to come back and say, um, when I plant flex, I'll always cramp through that area. It's due to the active insufficiency, right? Yeah. If, if it's like what in the in the hamstring itself no in the, in the calf yeah well some people would do that because you, you then because like i know personally like every time i well every time i used to do it that, that was always a limiting factor yeah there we go because you're shortening it for and that's basically what's happening if you shorten it from your ankle and then you move into knee flexion mm. you get into maximal knee flexion your calf's then completely short and you can get that cramping effect which is what happens you know i mean we we need to bring out that thing at some point there's like this act of insufficiency we'll have to do get someone cool on to talk about that how would you get yeah or gas or something like that gas um, he shares a similar view but there's a lot of people out there that you know do stuff for their muscles that are like these bioarticular muscles that 
gets them actively insufficient and then they start cramping they're like oh my god that's the best activation exercise ever and like you know if you really want to get that muscle firing you've got to get it in this position it's like you know all you've done is just make that muscle so mechanically inefficient that it Mm. just is cramping it's not actually doing anything for like a rehab purpose shots fired (laughs) (laughs) you're going to be on like a wanted list at the end of this podcast some people know who I'm talking about when I'm talking about that. <laughs> yeah. And um, like this run through, I think it's quite, it's quite a cool follow on. Um, the whole notion of being able to manipulate a leg extension with not only intent, but foot positioning as well to try and um, place torque tension, whatever you want to call it through uh, different areas of the quad. And not just not just from the hip, like not just you putting putting yourself into greater degree of hip flexion, but oh, yeah, someone asked that, yeah. Um, like, well, I think like that whole thing of if you like externally rotate, what is it? If you point your, I don't, I've never done it because it's dumb. Yeah, <laughs> but like people say, like when you tilt your femur outwards, you get more VMO, and then when you tilt them in, you get more. VL and it's like no um, but you, you, you when you when you like look at the the your knee joint and how it's the hinge joint like where, if the minute you start changing the angle of your femur and like basically changing your like if you're trying to line up the axis of the knee with the axis of the machine if you if you put your knee in a position where it's not lined up with that, which is what will happen if you kind of angle your knee off to the side, you're going to put abnormal forces through the knee and stress certain sides of that joint more than the other. And again, you know, if you value your knee health, I wouldn't do it. But ultimately, you you just want to make sure. I think what you can do is, and I've seen some posts on this, and I've done it with some people, is where even when you line their knee up absolutely perfectly, they can still get some knee pain. And then yeah. you can put like a block between their legs and get them to squeeze together. And it, you know, you can get some people where you want them to shove outwards a little bit, but you're still keeping the knee alignment the same. But you put something between their legs that they can squeeze in on, which is going to direct the force a little more um, laterally through the quad, through the knee. Um, and then, and that will potentially, well, it's worked with me a few times and then like with clients and then again you can do it where some people will put a band around their, their thighs and think about shoving out a bit and it's just a case of um managing forces going through the knee but that that that's quite a hard one to explain over a podcast mm. and like from the perspective of um because the interesting side of you know the leg extensions that you can like sit back on as well and putting the hips yeah. in a degree or a relative degree of flexion or extension and looking at how the, I presume it'd be rep fem wants to function in those, in those ranges of the hip. Like what, what would the difference be there? I think, yeah, someone asked that, didn't they? They said what would be the, the difference of going into hip flexion on a seated leg curl and, versus, and, a, and a leg extension. And it's like, I think all, all we'll say there is, it, I'll let him work it out if we say, if if the quads both you know cross both the knee and the hip, and the hamstrings cross both the knee and the hip, what would happen if you shorten shorten your well like max out your degree of hip flexion in either of those scenarios? So if you're trying to shorten your quads 
from the knee, what happens if you maxed out your hip flexion or increased, well, decrease your degree of hip flexion and essentially move into more hip extension? And again, what would happen if you were on a leg, a leg curl and did the same thing? You know, like what, what's the difference between a lying leg curl and a seated leg curl in regards to hamstring leg? That's basically what he's asking. Yeah. And I'll let him figure it out. And everyone else is listening. In terms of manipulation, yeah. Yeah. Because that, that's a good one. I mean, like some people don't know it, but, but think about it. You know, if you've got a muscle crossing two joints, then you, you, you can manipulate how short and long you can get that muscle from, from more than one end. What, what happens, right? Yeah. Mm. Okay, cool. Um, I'm trying to cipher through those questions now. Do you want to take that one on? Um, where was it? We need to do it. We need to do a separate podcast on the peaking one. Yeah. Um, so what about the twelve? Twelve percent. The guy who's just finishing his cut. Yeah, let me bring that up now. I've got it here. Do you want to read out? Go on. Uh, so it's from Matt Abraham. Um, hey, Bard, hope you're well. I'm just coming to the end of a dieting phase and so wondered if for the next Q&A installment of the podcast, you could discuss body fat set points to use when determining when to mass and when to cut. For example, I'm predicting I'll finish my 12-week cut in the mid to high 10% range down from 18 to 19%. And I'm not sure if I want to maintain for a few weeks and then keep pushing for lower body fat or if this is a good start point to uh, point, good point to start building tissue from again. Um, yeah, he said, I'll talk it through with my coach, but would be good to get your opinion. I think, did you say mid to high tens? He said mid to high 10% range. So that'd be 15 to 20. What do you mean? He means mid, oh, he means 10% point something. Yeah, that apparently he's he's claiming that he'll be mid to high ten percent. Okay, fine. I'd say he'll be like ten point five to ten. Oh, okay, fine. I thought you meant like fifteen to twenty. I was like, damn. Mm-hmm. <laughs> when he's to carry on dieting. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Start at eighteen. Went up. Um, like for me, it's it's obviously going to come down to it's very individualistic in terms of how people are going to respond to both you placing a calorie deficit on someone um, and their ability to respond to a diet. And normally that's going to come from the position they're starting with you in, in regards to, you know, how have they got their shit together? Are they managing stress? Well, are they sleeping well? What's the quality of the nutrition like? What's the quality of their training like? Um, mostly the first two, which we'll obviously talk about, you know, later on. Um, and we'll have featured in our seminar as well. <laughs> um, but like, is that is that individual function ultimately? Um, like, if you were going to take a caliper, and I'll, I'll caliper some people. I caliper obviously online clients. You can't caliper, so there must be something something going on where you can still work with someone that you can't caliper. Like circumference measurements is one taking initial circumference measurements and then going from there. But like most of my clients that I'll work with, I'll just go off like a visual representation of what they look like at the start and then what they look like now. Um, and if you've calipered someone before for a male or a female, you start to identify pretty typical, um, 
storage sites or storage patterns with individuals, so males and females, where they're most likely to hold um, or, or accumulate more fat mass. And whether you're pushing someone up with calories or whether you're dropping them down, those are the specific areas that I'd start to look at to kind of indicate whether someone's responding or not. Because you'll get people that will, you know, they're dieting and they'll have but they'll have abs in three weeks worth of a diet and then the lower back or the supra or the hamstring or something like that won't, won't come in for another 16 weeks. Like the storage distribution is going to be individualistic, but simply having a, having kind of a map out of where you're looking at for someone to respond is quite important over time. Otherwise you're just going to get lost in looking at everything. Um, mm. but like either from, even from a data perspective, if you are getting leaner, we should start to see health markers start to improve as well. So we should start to see like your aerobic capacity improve. We should start to see a lowering of, if you're managing stress well, a lowering of resting heart rate. We should start to see if you're managing, managing stress well, an increase in, in HRV because you're, you're carrying less, less adipose tissue. Um, we've got more fat-free, you've got more fat-free mass. We should start to see an increase in blood glucose management if you are leaner and you're less less inflamed. We've got less inflammation. We've got less less fat mass. The this the kind of the system in general starts functioning more optimally. Um, but like to answer your defi- like definitive points, if you were doing a um, a caliper test, and the the shit thing about caliper testing, if you're using like an eight or a twelve site, is like you go to every single person listening to this podcast and people are going to measure and do the sites completely different to the next person. So like it's mm-hmm. all going to be relative to the person that's taking your, your calipers. But I've always used a general rule of thumb of if somebody got down to 10%, they should be looking pretty lean. You'd, you'd agree. Yeah. Um, and a true 10%. Like, yeah, if that's a true 10% on the calipers, like you're going to be pretty fucking lean. Um, yeah. And I mean, if that guy wants to be short, then, you know, go get a few co- different coaches to do it and see what comes sure. up. Yeah. Cause if you, you, know, you get, and this is the thing I've seen this before where you get, you know, certain coaches are so keen to not, you know, to, to see their clients progress that they, you know, they just pinch that little bit less. Or, yeah. Be aggressive. Yeah. And, and, and so if you, if you just want, you know, if you're like, yeah, I think I'm 10%, but I'll get a second opinion. Just go and get someone else to just, your body fat he's never taken it before he knows how to take it as well and um and and see what happens but again like callum said you know it's incredibly subjective way of measuring it mm. or you just go and jump in a dexa scan go, go, go find a university somewhere with a dexa um well i i like a pretty prime example of um because I, pre- I presume matt's long-term goal is to then start to like think so. build tissue off the new set point he's created right yeah, yeah. i posted a, a guy last night um costa who's been working with me online which we brought down um he's lost i think like 12 kilos in 12 weeks or something and he's been using calipers as well but i i, I don't really pay attention to them I, I pay attention to other feedback and obviously visuals um mm. but now like my indicator of how long i haven't put a time frame on how long we're pushing to i i didn't say oh we're going to diet for eight weeks and then bulk for eight weeks or whatever like unless somebody's got a show or a definitive time frame i'll just start it and then see how they respond and if we want to speed things up we can if we want to slow things down we can but for him we've used the the kind of point at which he's started to accumulate fatigue above what he can manage day to day as the point where he stops 
and now he's in a very he's in a very lean set point but like the last two weeks have now started to show signs where um hunger and an appetite is very very high satiety is not being met so he's uncomfortable um you know sleep quality is being compromised because he's very very hungry at night um, we're going to see more sympathetic dominance from a, an elevation resting heart rate. We're going to see training performance start to diminish. Um, you know, all these indicators are signs for me telling him he either needs to back off for a certain amount of weeks to reset and then go again, or he needs to now start to reverse calories back up. Um, Sounds like a pussy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There is like, there's that whole concept of like embrace the suck and like grind and stuff, but like there's going to be a, there's within reason. Um, no, I mean, and then what you're doing is smart, and that's the thing. Like, you can take you take someone, you put someone in a deficit for too long, you take someone to a very, very extreme low level of body fat. The amount of allostatic load that you you oh, accumulate yeah. in that, and like the the changes that you you will incur hormonally, will probably work. You know, you, everyone assumes like the leaner you are, the the better position you are, and to grow. If for you, Matt, like getting that lean requires you to go to a place where you know sleep's taking a hit your stress levels are going out of whack and you're getting into a position where you're like highly sympathetic dominant you won't be in a great place to grow so it's like if you if you're if if you're kind of in a situation as cal describes his clients in there potentially you'd be like yeah maybe i'm I'm okay to push things up for like eight weeks or so and, and just you know not no not go ham but just you know essentially give yourself a bit more food allow your kind of metabolic rate to readjust and then start digging again mm-hmm. um, i think it, i think it has for for a lot of people like this has to be cyclical we can't take it all off in one go exactly and um but that's the thing like people don't realize you can you can go too far and actually compromise your position to grow mm. so be aware of that right yeah that's that's a really good point really good point like the whole the whole concept of oh I'm going to get this individual leaner to then be able to, you know, be in an incredible set point to grow. It's only an incredible set point to grow. If you can maintain the integrity of those recovery markers and health markers, if they deteriorate at a consequence of you trying to get that individual leaner, he's just in a worse position than he was when he started. Exactly. Um, and if you, if you're getting a client that comes to you like that, then your, your first point of call, as Luke said in the previous you know, as Luke said multiple times in the previous few podcasts about digestion, like we know what happens to digestive function when we're highly sympathetic, don't we? When we're highly stressed, um, and your last, your last priority when you've got that individual in front of you, whether he's like fucked post show or he's done a very harsh prep and now he's looking to pick up the pieces, but your last priority is to then, oh, right, we're going to slam this food in, we're going to start training hard. It's almost like you have to run a recovery phase before you can start. Um, mm. Whereas with, with whereas with Costa, like we've we've stopped the diet now before he's then crossed that point of of like diminishing returns. So now we can start to push food back into the diet, and he's going to start to respond very very well. And he'll probably get leaner when we start increasing food, probably for the first four to six weeks, because his metabolism is and metabolism and from a metabolic perspective, he's going to respond very well to food because his training intensity will increase. Exactly, and that could be another thing that Matt sees as well. Start, yeah. start working food back up, and it's like, oh, you could potentially spend the next four, six weeks getting leaner anyway. Yeah, because you're still in a deficit, right? If you've made this fucking massive hole, if you yeah. creep food up week to week, but incrementally and patiently, you're still in an energy deficit. You're just responding and performing better now. Yeah, and like from personal experience, from self and with clients, do not 
succumb to the uh, the the like the the like in innate desire to just go. Yeah, I can tolerate six hundred more calories a day, and, and you know, and bang your food up really abruptly. Just, yeah. you, know, you you if you do a decent reverse diet, you you probably be hungry for a little bit, but you've just got to appreciate that you you're gonna see some pretty decent body compositional changes from enduring that. Yeah, I'm I'm a hundred percent for the slower approach to pushing out. Yeah. yeah, are you? Yeah, I think it's like you've seen the name, right? I mean, it's like if someone is going to reverse diet, and it's controversial. Some people disagree with that whole notion, but you know, you you are essentially just dieting less aggressively. Yeah, but you're yeah. still dieting, so you still will be hungry a little bit. Well, how many calories are you on at the moment, Luke? Not a lot. <laughs> I think Luke eats eat most of his calories from fruit now. I sleep for 23 hours a day <laughs> and, I, and I wake up for an hour to do podcasts. <laughs> uh, you know, text me throughout the week and be like, do you think that's too low to go down? <laughs> <laughs> oh dear. Like, talk, talk as yeah, if you're, you're, um, you're on pretty low food at the moment for a reason. How are you yeah. managing satiety with that amount of calories? Because that's quite a cool topic in itself. Like yeah, people, people are diet, dieting for a show, for a holiday now. Like, what are you using to manage satiety at the moment? Because you're fasting as well. Exactly. Like, so like on my non-training days, I fast. And I try and I'm starting to implement it more with clients. It's quite a hard thing to ask someone to do. If they've never done it before. Um, so, you know, for those clients of mine out there listening, I appreciate that it's difficult, but it, it, it is like once you do it a few times, you you, you feel pretty damn good for it. The, the, one of the huge benefits of doing that is that you just, you can take out a pretty decent chunk of calories from the week and still be pretty productive. Um, there's not a huge marked benefit in terms of fat loss. Um, there's a marked benefit in terms of digestive health and activating certain cool pathways in the body with regards to like healing the gut, which we'll talk about at some point. It's, it's pretty damn cool. Um, but the, um, in terms of like the, the implementing the fasting mainly is just so I can keep training their food a little bit higher and not suffer too bad. Except the, at the moment, like I'm being pretty damn harsh with myself, but, um, the, and, and that's where like calories for me are low, but the bulk of it is being made up of like, plant-based foods and um you know protein but not as much as i've had in the past and i've actually been maintaining weight pretty well actually like my weight hasn't changed much but i've got i'm the leanest i've ever been which is pretty cool um how long is it been uh two two twenty okay so it's still it's still a decent amount isn't it yeah, it's not. It's not your body, I've, had it, I've had it higher before. Your body mass is. Yeah, yeah, and it's not like, I mean, that's like just under one gram per pound. Yeah. So that's, that's not a lot. Um, but the, um, and like, and like the, you know, I've been, uh, people who follow me, you know, I'm a big fan of all the plant based foods and fruits and veggies and stuff. So like, I've been prioritizing those guys, making sure fiber intake's in a good place and making sure digestive health's in a good place. And, um, kind of health markers and performance markers are in a good place as a result. And, um, and like with the, the le- less protein, there's less demand on my digestive system. So that seems like recovery is in a good place because I'm probably assimilating things pretty damn well. Um, 
And um, yeah, I mean, it's like I, I, my food volume is pretty high because of my choices of food. Like I'm not eating like everything I'm eating is like single ingredient nutrient dense, which is pretty good. And you feel pretty good for it. And that's like when you, when you look at, um, this is a, well, it's a quote from Luke Lehman when we did muscle nerds. Um, but he, he said, you know, when you take away calories from someone, you've got to replace it with nutrition. And that's something I've basically made sure I've done. So as calories have gone down, I've just basically made sure that micronutrients are kind of as high as they can possibly be. Um, and it's, you know, it's a pretty good way of doing it. So, um, yeah, the only downside is, is, you know, it's still dieting. It's still tough, but, but it's, um, it's making it easier. So for those out there that struggle with dieting, consider not going crazy on things like fats and protein and bumping up your plant-based foods and, and you'll probably feel pretty damn good for it and make and like digestion, sleep, recovery and stuff will actually be in a pretty good place because you're able to get everything into your body and into your cells pretty damn effectively. Mm. Anyway. And then cows just eating everything. Yeah, like whatever just whatever Hannah cooks for me, I'll just eat now, to be honest. Yeah. With no real set agenda. He, he was caught eating out of Rosie's bowl the other day. <laughs> he, caught, he was on the side and he was like, Oh, Hannah's made that for me. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good point on protein though, in terms of well, I've I've started well, probably over the last year or so bringing protein down in almost everyone's programming just because you see so many benefits from a digestive perspective. Yeah. And it's like um, your ability to eat, your ability to maintain appetite, like it just goes full circle. Yeah. And I, and I was thinking, like, is it is a thing that there's a, you know, people do prioritize protein a little too much in the sense of, you know, even if you dig into the research and look into it with regards to gaining muscle, people have way more than they need. And like whether they're using anabolics or not, like you, you, you don't need like, 400 gram 450 grams of protein a day you just don't no. and it's like and and you know whoever is consuming that have the balls to try it reducing it and you'll probably be fine because it's not like you're going to reduce um your overall calories you can like make that those calories up from other foods like carbs something like that which are equally anabolic if not more um and uh, and you you're going to put in potentially you know have more room to put in more nutrient dense foods and you will probably feel better for it and you you won't be like farting all the time because you've got so much like fermenting protein and ammonia in your digestive tract. <laughs> you make it sound so attractive. I know, right? Smash that protein. <laughs> Get it in seventy grams a meal. Yeah, sweet. You know, even even when you're on a, you know that much. If someone's running loads of anabolics, you know you can, you can attack, you know, deal with more protein than the average person. But does that, you know, do you need to? Mm. Well, especially with the, with the kind of the impacts anabolics are going to have on regulation of all those, um, like since the uh, muscle protein synthesis is remaining in a positive protein balance, like you could probably yeah. with less anyway. Yeah, so it's like if anything, there's an argument to use slightly less and put put other areas. I don't know. That's that's a debate for another time. But but it's an interesting one. Don't, like for those that are smashing like 400 
even 300 grams of protein. A day. <laughs> I thought you were going to say, for those that are smashing gear. If you're putting away like an excessive amount of protein for your body weight, try it. Gen- genuinely try bring it down and, and bring it up from other areas like, you know, plant-based foods and you probably feel pretty good for it. Mm. And not to mention, you still get protein from putting in quite a lot of veg and fruit. Yeah. Yeah. So, so if Chris Soss is listening to this, because I reduced his protein by 20 grams, and he texted me immediately saying he was, he was scared that I reduced his protein, shut the fuck up. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. He's losing his calves. That's what happens. Um, but yeah, no, that puts things in context. That's good. Um, anything else that we can jump through quickly and let's look it's been quite a while Uh, oh guests coming on soon isn't there yeah we've yeah we'll save the name we'll save Save the name name. okay that's cool it's It's going to be cool though like I know Larry Doyle's going to fucking cream his pants when he hears it (laughs) (laughs) big Larry (laughs) yeah yeah Steady on, Larry. Steady. Any more, any more, any more? I think we'll leave it there. Oh, there's one, one more. This, you'll like this one. Is there an optimal source of probiotics as different probiotics offer different strains which that, in themselves offer different advantages? That is the perfect question to wait for our next uh, literally that's what we're going to talk about with this guest but all i'll say is probiotics are generally that there's a there's very small cases where i'll use them with clients and that's like like off the top of my head there's two people i'm using them with now and that's for clearing up a small intestinal bacterial overgrowth and that's um only because like using the specific probiotic we're using in conjunction with what else the other things we're doing has been shown to be quite effective. But in regards to like, you know, populating someone's gut that there's not any evidence out there yet with regards to probiotics. They're like the only way to do that. And I said this to a client the other day, and I'm actually genuinely seriously going to try and look into how to get this done is with fecal transplants. You're a freak. No, 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 but like there's places... Jake was talking about this at the weekend. Yeah, yeah, there's places in America where you literally go to a, you go to a gastroenterologist and they'll basically contact the lab and they'll have this like basically poop from some really healthy person's gut shipped down and then, you, you know, they basically put it in your gut and it literally has been found to cure the most outrageous things like clostridium difficile like there's kids with like autism that have had a fecal transplant and just being like walked out there without autism it's ridiculous no. and it's like but that's the only way you can do it and they they then you know when they can find a way to create a probiotic that has that effect then that's cool but at the moment they're probably like a decade off that and it's like you think like there's about a hundred trillion bacteria in our gut and a probiotic's got like on average like vsl3 has got 495 billion or something that's still like barely one percent or half a percent of what's in um you know the amount of bacteria in our gut so it's like you have these ones out there with like oh yeah i'm taking my probiotic and there's five billion live you know live uh cells or whatever in, in here and it's like that's like 
that's nothing that's like 0.1 of a percent mm. 0.05 so is that going to go in your gut and make a big difference or is it going to go in your gut and just be like you know it's like one guy walking into you know beijing china and being like sweet i'm gonna change everything and make everything how i want to make it it's like no you're not mate <laughs> so, so all those listening to this don't self-administer a fecal transplant yeah it's that you, even though you can <laughs> people have done that they literally that's how they did it originally they would put it literally get some there's people that have done it where they get a healthy family member's poop go and get it inspected by a gastroenterologist and then whack it in a blender and, and stick it out them their own bum that's just got weird so quickly it's, it's so messed up but they've that people have done that and it's what you imagine if somebody skipped to that point of the podcast and on that note said that i'm gonna say that the information that's <laughs> discussed in this in, in all our episodes is not intended to diagnose treat prevent or cure any condition and is for information purposes only and if you know if you're considering doing anything of what we're, we've spoken about then consult your healthcare professional because we're, we're just having banter here and, and happen to be recording it. <laughs> but yeah, that's it. That did get weird. But that's, um, that is it like, for those that are interested in the gut, that's the only way that if you've got a really, really, really messed up gut and people die from like things like Clostridium difficile, then, you know, that that's like the, I think the only proven way of getting rid of it, short of smashing yourself with antibiotics, which themselves haven't been proven to do much in cases um, like that and the damage they do is insane uh, fuck you up anyway so it's um yeah i mean it's a crazy one and like like i said like the guy we're going to get on next is which i don't know when it will be so it might be that we have to that might be in a few weeks time um but it, that will be coming out we, we'll be going into stuff like that because um th- that's literally what he does um and um and he's a cool guy so prepare yourself larry it's coming and, and for the record, Larry, he has confirmed. So I think Larry will know who I'm talking about. So anyway. Cool. Leave there? Yeah, let's leave it there before you get even more weird. Yeah. Apologies, guys. <laughs> You'll ask the questions. <laughs> All right, that's cool. Um, job done. So that is Q&A 3 ticked off. And uh, we will be back next week for potentially guest or potentially and a four yeah oh yeah hopefully yeah right we, we might get someone else on in the meantime yeah everyone's asking to be on here just so sure. we've got like 300 people that have been like oh can i be a guest on your podcast <laughs> i guess that's a lie <laughs> 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 yeah, right okay that's cool um thank you for listening thank you for luke's brain and uh Thank you for Callum's brain. Yeah, a good cueing from me there, I think. Um, we'll, we'll, we'll confirm what the next episode is on social media, right? But we need to figure out who it is. Yeah, and stay, and like we said, stay tuned for this uh, week. Yes. The seminar details. Oh, yes. Okay, cool. Um, sweet. Thanks, guys. We'll speak to you soon. Bye. Ciao.